Well, thank you, Curtis, and thank you, uh, church. Good morning to y'all. I want to say thank you to the worship team. Very first thing, wow, if you can't preach after worship like that, it's time to hang it up and do something different. Amen. Uh, what, a, what incredible worship time we had this morning. And I'm so glad to be here with you. I love your pastor and his wife. They've uh, blessed us. So I need to say thank you here at the very beginning uh, for you not just holding them to yourself, but allowing them uh, opportunities to go outside of this church and uh, take what's here, what God is doing here, not just in their lives and in their ministry, but in this church and take it to other places. They've come to our church in Wharton. They've affected our home church of our network of churches across Texas. And uh, many of the leaders from our different churches have come in and, uh, and had the opportunity to receive ministry from Curtis and from Allison. And we're very, very grateful for that, all right? So uh, that's also uh, an in inducement for you, I hope, to keep sending them, all right? Don't hold on to them, all right? Let them, let them come out and touch other churches and other leaders. I, I pray that you'll continue to do that. I'm excited about what I'm going to share with you this morning. I'm going to be speaking this morning, and the title of the topic, and for those of you who are taking notes this morning, which I hope is many of you, uh, the title this morning is A Heart for War. A Heart for War. We're going to start in Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1, we're going to read first three verses where we're going to begin this morning. Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, After the death of Moses, a servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aide, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. Now, Saints, some 44 years prior to what we're reading here in Joshua chapter 1, you have the people of Israel who've been delivered out of 400 years of bondage in Egypt, all right? So 44 years prior to this, we find ourselves in Exodus 13. They've been delivered out of 400 years of bondage in Egypt in the most amazing ways. And most of us here this morning, we know some of those stories. Even if you're not a really good Bible student, you know some of the great miracles that God did to bring them out. And then, of course, we know that Pharaoh had a change of heart. He chased after him with his whole army. God part of the Red Sea so that the uh, Israelites could cross through. And then when the Egyptian army came in behind him, he wiped them out. All right? So God's done all these amazing things. He brings them to this place. They're in Exodus 13. But God says this word to him there. He says, I cannot take them directly into their promises because they have, they have no heart for war. I can't take, I want to take them straight into the promised land, straight into their promises, but I cannot because they have no heart for war. So what God does is He takes them for four years and they wander around. God leads them around in the wilderness for four years. Now, you need to understand this. This is not punishment. God is not punishing them during these four years. In fact, it's quite the opposite what God is doing. During those four years, God is using this time to teach them about His faithfulness to them. He's teaching them about who He is. He's teaching them about who He is to them. And, don't miss this, He's also teaching them about who they are to Him. So for four years, God leads them around in the wilderness, and He's providing for them in amazing ways, protecting them and, and making His presence known, His love for them known, day by day. 
Now, some of us uh, have seen the old uh, Cecil B. DeMille Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, right? Some of us may have watched the more modern, messed up one, all right? But, uh, you know, but either way, you know, in either one of those, they, you know, you, we, we see God being there, as, just as Scripture says, as a pillar of cloud before him, he leads him in the day, right? And at nighttime, it turns into what? A pillar of fire. And when the pillar moves, then the people of God move with that. And a lot of us understand that, again, even if we're not really good Bible students, you know, we picked it up uh, from things that we've heard or, or from movies we've watched. But we need to understand there's more than that going on. Many Christians don't even understand that. But if you look in Psalm 105, as well as in 1 Corinthians 10, you'll see that the cloud of God was not just a pillar before them, it was actually over them as well. That's interesting. That's an important point, too, as well, because they're in the desert, and in the daytime, when temperatures soar to levels that are scorching, that would dry up people and, and cause them to die in the heat, God covers them daily, every day, every moment of every day, in a cloud. So it's nice and comfortable, right? Right there in the desert. And then at night, when temperatures drop down to freezing level, what God does is He turns on the burners, right, in the cloud, and He keeps them nice and toasty warm, all right? So He's showing them how much they mean to Him, who He is as a faithful God, right? Who they are as His people, who He is to them, who they are to them, all right? So He's teaching them that for four years. So for four years, that takes place. Then God brings them to Kadesh Barnea, which is the entrance to the promised land. And he says, okay, time for you to go get it. And they said, well, you know, we're not quite so sure. We think that maybe what we need to do is send in some spies and check it out because, because you know, maybe it's not exactly the way God said it was. Now, some of us have read this and thought that God, sent the, that God came up with the idea to send the spies in. But if you'll read this, you'll find out that actually it's not the case at all. They just said, you know, we need to go check this out. And in fact, when they come back, the 12 spies come back, they, they, they come and they report to them and they said, look, you know, look, it's exactly like God said it was. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. And, and we even brought some, we knew you guys wouldn't believe it, so we brought you some evidences of it. What do you know? God's not a liar after all. But we got a big problem. Ten of the twelve said, we can't go in there and take that land because there are giants in that land. And there are fortified cities there. And two of them, you know the story, many of you here, right? Joshua and Caleb, two of them said, oh, no, 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 we can surely take it. It doesn't matter, giants don't matter, fortified cities don't matter. We can do this. God is with us. We can do this. Come on, don't you remember the four years? Don't you, didn't you, you remember what he did in Egypt? And you remember the last four years, how God has washed over us, protected us? You know who we are to him? Come on, we can do this. And they're going, no, 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 we can't do that. And if you read through that account, in Numbers 14, you're going to find this. You'll find that Joshua and Caleb tore their clothes. Now, some of us have read that and just read past that and missed a very significant point there. Why on earth did they do that? Well, think forward to the New Testament when Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin and they said, we ask you in the name of the living God, are you the Son of God? And Jesus stood up and said, I am. And what did the high priest do? He tore his clothes. Why? Because it was blasphemy. And that's exactly what Joshua and Caleb were doing when they tore their clothes. They said, what you're saying is nothing short of blasphemy. For you to say that we're not who God says we are, for you to say that we can't do what God says we can do, for you to say that we can't have what God himself has promised to us, that's nothing less than blasphemy. 
And I pray, God, for every single one of you here this morning, I pray that every time from this point forward for the rest of your life, any time you are tempted to think or say, you know, I can't, or I could never, or I can never, that's probably not for me. I hope that in the background you hear a tearing of the garments. It's nothing short of blasphemy. They said, no, we can We should. And I love this about this. This is what Joshua, Joshua said. Don't you get it, brethren? The giants, they are bread for us. Oh, I like that. How many of you come to a place where you walk with God long enough, you understand that giants are nothing other than the breakfast of champions? They are bread for us. Boy, we knock them down, we eat them up, we get stronger by it, and we're ready to take the next one down. That's what giants are. They're the breakfast of champions. Come on. And, and if you're a faith-filled believer, you know, what's a giant anyway? To a faith-filled believer, a giant is not more than two feet tall. Yeah, because a giant flat on his back is nothing more than two feet tall. Come on. And a faith-filled believer sees giants that way. But, of course, they wouldn't hear that. They didn't want anything to do with that. They rejected the counsel of Joshua and Caleb. And so this time, God sends them back into the wilderness. And this time, it's for 40 years, not four. And this time, it is punishment. They stay there until all but two, Joshua and Caleb, are the only two that came through that, still alive. All the rest of them die off there. Then, then, we come to Joshua 1, where we just read this morning, God brings this new generation back to the river Jordan, back to the threshold of their inheritance, and under new leadership, he tells them, go for it. But then he says these words to them that we just read a minute ago, Joshua chapter 1, verse 3. He says, every place where your foot treads, or every place where you set your foot, depending on which translation you're reading, every place that your foot treads, every place where you set your foot, I will give to you now there's a powerful truth there that we will miss many times by reading in just the english language because when we dig into the original languages we find so much depth there that is missed in just our english language which actually unfortunately i know we all hate to hear that because we want to think everything american is better i mean I, i got that but but the truth is the english language is the very limited language all right very limited and the hebrew language is one of the richest languages that's ever existed on planet earth and so we get in here and we see this word When God speaks this, there's something much more than just, well, every place where I set my foot. You mean all all I got to do, if I want my promise, I just got to walk over there and put my foot there and it's mine. No, 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 no. The word there in the Hebrew is the word darak, D-A-R-A-K. That word is a military term. It was a military term in that day. It meant what? To take an arrow out of your quiver, put it in the bow, and draw the bow back. That's what it meant. Darak. Get an arrow out, put it, get ready to fight. It still is used today by the Israeli army. Today. When they give a command in the Israeli army, Darak, that means put a bullet in the chamber, take it off safety, put it on your shoulder. That's what it means. We are about to throw down, we're going to have to fight. Amen? So when God says, every place where your foot treads or every place where you set your foot, he's not talking about waltz across Texas with Jesus in your heart. Amen? He's saying this. Oh, we want to believe that, all right? But the truth is, he's saying this. He's saying, every place that you're willing to fight for, you can have. Every one of your promises that you're willing to stand there and fight for, tooth and nail, till you get it, you can have it. 
Oh, and Christians, we don't like that in America. We don't like that. Christians around the world are speaking different places. Nobody really likes that. But that's the truth of what God says. You see, the promises of God, listen to me carefully this morning, saints. The promises of God are not automatic. It's not a lay down, amen? You don't just show up and get them, all right? You're going to have to fight for them. Every now and then we get one real easy, but most of them and the best of them usually are ones we have to fight for. And immediately what happens with a lot of Christians, they say, whoa, 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 time out, Pastor Miles. Wait a minute. Is God giving them their promises or do they have to fight for their promises? The answer is yes. No, 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 no. Wait, 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 wait. Is God giving my promises to me or do I have to fight for my promises? Yes. Every place where your foot treads, but the trouble is, it's the same now as it was then. There's a giant standing on that promise saying, I defy you. I defy you. You can't have it. And so what happened in that day is they had to learn how to conquer giants, how to take down fortified cities in order for those promises to actually become theirs, to change from just being songs they sing about and things they love to quote and say, but to actually possess them for their life. They had to learn how to fight and get them. Amen? Oh, we got to understand this, saints. I have so many Christians through the years and pastoring churches, uh, our network of churches, some, and then I'm overseas a lot, doing a lot of pastors' conferences, leadership thing in different nations now. And, and all these leaders would come and say, you know, well, you know, Pastor Miles, I, you know, I just, man, I just, you know, I can't find my promise. I'm just not sure what promises God has for me. And I said, listen, it's real simple. Can I give you a simple formula? Because if you're praying and you're seeking God and you can't get the promise from him, you can't get definition on, it's real simple. Just do this. You ready? They're like, yeah, yeah, what is it? What is it? Here it is. Look for the giant. If you can't find your promise, just look for the giant. Because I'll tell you, there's a giant standing on your promise. Look and find the giant. Some of us are better at finding giants than we are at finding promises. Find the giant. There's a promise underneath him. Amen? You're going to have to go take that giant down, and God's promise is right there underneath him. We have to learn how to conquer giants. Otherwise, we're not going to possess the fullness of God's promises for us and our life. Now, how many of you understand that that's the way it is with God? I hope, I mean, if you walk with God long enough, you, you ought to be getting clued in on this, all right? Even if it's never been taught to you, a lot of us just kind of figure that, man, you know what? I mean, it takes something more than just, you know, believing in it and just standing and hoping and waiting and praying for it to come. I have to do something, whether that's my marriage, whether that's my family, whether that's my finances, whether that's my job and career, whether that's some ministry calling that God has for my life, I'm going to have to fight for it and not give up and not get faint-hearted. I'm going to have to hang in there and get it. And again, see, there's so many things that we miss, and, and, and I, I'm, a, I'm a Bible lover, man. I, I love the Word of God. Uh, that's one of the things that gets me into trouble sometimes. I, I mean, people say, what's your favorite verse? The Bible, amen. Uh, you know, well, don't you have a favorite verse? Oh, I got so many of them. And it gets me into trouble because I, I, I'm winding up preaching and I, and I need to quit. And then there's another verse going, preach me, preach me. And, I, and then I can't resist, I mean, because I love them, right? And, and so, I mean, I, I love the word, but, but there is a richness. And that's one of the things that we're charged as pastors 
uh, to do is to get in and study the Word of God and study those words, the original language word, because there's something there many times in these verses that there's a truth there, but it's a deeper truth if we get into the original language. Let me give you a word that's real common. You'll see it frequently through the, Old, through the New Testament, and many of us have no clue that it exists, and we've misunderstood much of what God said to us because we haven't understood this word. The word is lumbano. Lumbano. L-A-M-B-A-N-O. Greek word, lumbano. Now, the word lumbano simply means this. It means to violently, aggressively seize something, pull it violently, aggressively to yourself, and hold on to it so tight, nothing can take it away from you. Got it? Lumbano means to violently, aggressively seize something, rip it, pull it, and hold it so tight that nothing can take it from you. That's what the word lumbano means, all right? Now, let me just share with you. Just, I'll just give you, we don't have time to look at all of them. I'll just give you three of them this morning, all right? Real common verses that many of us are very familiar with. Matthew 10, verse 7. Jesus is speaking. He says, freely you have received, now freely give. Freely you have received, now freely give. Can't you just hear the babbling book in the brook in the background, and the daisies wafting in the breeze. Freely you have received. Oh, isn't that wonderful? And now I can freely give. But when you look at this in the original Greek language, uh-oh, we find that word lumbano there. Freely you have lumbanoed. Now you can give away what you got. Curtis, come here. Will you bring me that Bible up here? Just a simple example. Here, see, here's God. And he's got a promise for me, right? And I freely come and receive. No, 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 no. That's not what it says. Many promises I'm not going to get if I do that. Instead, <laughs> that's what the word of God says for you and I to do. That's what that verse says. Freely you have lumbanoed it. Now that you have it and you possess it, you can give that to others. Now, you know what the problem is? The church has become so sissified. We've become more polite than God himself is. Amen? And so I'll do something like that, and I can guarantee you in a group this size, a number of you were a little put off by that. And I tell you, this message is especially for you. Yeah. That's just a little rude, isn't it? How offensive to grab something from God. Like, Let me tell you something. I travel a lot, a lot more than I like to. Uh, my wife loves to travel and she's at home. And I, tra- and I don't like to travel and God's got me going all over the world. Right? But I come in from, from, from overseas and I've been gone three weeks in Africa or wherever else. And I'll come in and my kids line up at the door. Because they're happy to see dad. That's a good thing. Amen. But they're also really anxious to see what dad's got in his luggage. Because they know their dad. He's a good dad. He loves them dearly. So there's always good stuff that dad brings home. Amen. All right. And so they're happy to see me. And they hug me. And they greet me. And I'm going through the house. And they are staying with that piece of luggage everywhere (laughs) it goes. 
Dad, I'm so glad you're home. And, you know, we're, and, they follow, and they follow me back to the bedroom, and I pull that suitcase open, I zip it open, I pull it open, and I start handing out gifts, and I reach out and hand a gift to one of my children, and they grab that gift, and they rip it open. And I want to tell you something. I am so hurt and offended by that. No, I'm not. Just the same as you. I'm thrilled by that. What does that say to me? That says, oh, they know who I am. And they know who they are to me. They know that I have good gifts and they can't wait to get into them. Come on, saints. All right. We need to lumbano those promises that God has for us. Here's another one. 1 Timothy 6, verse 12. It says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Oh, there it is. Take hold is what? Lumbano that life. Seize it. Violently, aggressively seize that. And lay hold of it. Here's another one real quickly. Matthew 11, 12. The kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing. And forceful men lay hold. Lumbano it. They go after it. They're not waiting, hoping that it'll be served up to them on a silver platter. They're going after it. I want my marriage to be godly marriage. Boy, I hope someday somebody will come and shove some truth down my throat. And down my wife's throat. So that we, No, I'm going to go after that. Come on, give me, what an incredible marriage. What an, that's one of the reasons why we had him come teach, teach at our marriage conference. One of the things we had him come do. What an incredible marriage, right? So I want a marriage like that. So how did you get that? I, can, can I bug you? Can you give me permission to just bug you guys for a while? Because I need to find out how you got that, because I want that. What did you read? What books did you read? Can, can, you, can you just download to us things that you've learned so that we can end up on? Come on. If you're sitting in this church and your marriage isn't good, shame on you if you aren't wearing them out. Amen? Or maybe others in this church that they've designated say, oh, here's another. Come on. You need to be go-getting that. Don't be passive about it. Be aggressive. Come on, go Lombano that thing. All right? And the same with different other things in life. Those promises that God has for us, we have to go after them. You see, in Gideon's day, the people of God were always planting but never harvesting. Always planting, never harvesting. Yeah? In Gideon's day. You know, they were, oh, we till the soil. We pray for the, we put the seed out. Well, we, we sow and we pray for the rain to come and it comes. And the crop comes up and we're all excited, but we never harvest. Why? Because the Midianites also knew when it was harvest time and they'd come over and take the harvest every single time. Midianites show up, took our harvest. Oh, they took our harvest. We didn't get. We planted, but we didn't. We sowed, but we didn't receive. So what do we do? We go out. We till the soil again. We plant good seed. We pray for rain. God provides provides the rain, and we're there, and it looks like harvest time. Everything, and then the Midianites show up again. Oh, the Midianites! And listen, saints, come on. That is a good picture of so many Christians around the world today in the church. All right. Planting, 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 never harvesting. Come on. And it was stayed that way for the people of God back in Gideon's day until God raised up a militant army of people who said, enough. I want what is mine. I want the promises of God. Amen? Come on. God desperately wants to bring forth a militant people in this day. He wants His church to stop being so passive. Come on. And to be militant, to stand up and fight 
for what's theirs. He's looking for an army of believers who aren't just interested in getting all the armor of God on so they can parade around and look good. He wants a militant army of believers who have blood on their sword. Amen? Who like to get into it and mix it up and enjoy the fight. Amen? Because I want what God has promised me and I'm not going to be content until I get that. Can I say it to you this way this morning, saints? God wants a people that are like Him. God wants a people that are like Him. Well, what is God like? Well, there's a lot of different aspects of who God is, right? God is love. God, I mean, there's a lot of different things in there about God. And let's look at one of them that much of the church has simply put on the shelf and not been willing to look at. God wants a people who are like Him. What do we know? Understand Romans 8, 28, 29, what? Being conformed to the image of the Son, right? That's God's overriding purpose for you and I is that we be conformed to the image of His Son. And being conformed to the image of the Son is the same thing as being conformed to the image of God. Hebrews 1.3 says what? The Son is the exact representation, the exact manifestation of the Father. That's why when Philip comes to Jesus, after almost three years of being with him, he says, Jesus, show us the Father. Oh, you can just hear almost the, 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 the cry in Jesus' voice as he answered, Philip, have I been with you this long and you still don't get it? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're just alike. I'm a chip off the old block. Come on. Amen. I'm just like Him. God wants us to be like Him. So what is God like? What is God like? Let's look at this. Father God. How many of you in here want to be like Father God? Come on. Raise your hand. Wave it at me. Right? You want to be like, because I, I look at my congregation when they do, I said, you know, listen, if you raise your hand like this on a question like that, not much chance of you getting it. I mean, come on, I'm looking for a hand that goes, yes, I want it. All right, now I have a lot of hope for you. All right? So let's ask it one more time. How many of you want to be like Father God? Yeah. There you go. Okay, now it's better. All right. Okay. <laughs> Exodus 15, verse 3. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Who is God? Oh, he's lots of different things, but here's one of the key aspects to God's character. He is a warrior. And we, his people, should be warriors as well. If you're growing, oh, I'm growing to be more Christ-like, I'm growing to be more God-like. If you're not becoming more and more and more a warrior, then your growth is deficient, believer. Amen? You, if you're growing to be more like him, then you're, part of that is you're growing to be more and more like a warrior. Amen? Isaiah 42, verse 13. The Lord will march out like a mighty man, like a warrior. He will stir up his zeal. With a shout, he will raise the battle cry and triumph over his enemies. Oh, see, some of us, we, we, we've stayed away from this in the church for so long. Some of us have forgotten that this is a part of who God is. This is his nature, his character. If there's evil, if there's anything stopping his promises, his goodness from manifesting on earth, boy, God, there's some, a warrior spirit comes up in and said, oh, no, 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 no. This is not going to last. This is not going to last. This has got to go down. Now, how many of you still want to be like Father God? All right, oh, that's good. Okay. How many of you want to be like Jesus? You want to be like Jesus? Okay, let's look, at, let's look at an aspect of who Jesus is. Again, part of it that we haven't looked at for the most part, in much of the church today. Isaiah 63. Y'all okay? Y'all going to be ready for this one? Isaiah 63, 1 through 4. Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forth in the greatness of his strength? 
It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Now, who is this? This is Jesus. This is the picture of the pre-incarnate Christ. Come on. This is, and there, no matter what part of the segment of the body of Christ you're in, Bible scholars, seminaries, Bible schools, all across the spectrum, understand that is being speaking of Jesus here, right? That's who's in this, in this uh, passage that we're reading here in Isaiah 63. Verse 2. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I've trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments, and I stained all my clothing. That sounds more like Braveheart than Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, come on. See, some of us, we, we have a hard time. Hey, can you picture Jesus that way? Oh, I picture Jesus. He's a stained glass window. He's holding the lambs, you know. That, that is who he is. But so is this. And we've gotten so imbalanced in much of the church that we get over here and we just camp here and we ignore that. And we ignore that. We miss a full picture of who He is and we miss a full picture of who you and I are supposed to be and the way we're supposed to live. And as a result, we miss so many promises that God has for us. Look at this one in, in Psalm 45. Verse 7, you love righteousness. This is speaking of Jesus. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions. God has exalted you above all other human beings on planet Earth. And part of the reason for that, this verse tells us, is that he loved righteousness. Oh, and there's one other part in there too, isn't there? He hates wickedness. Much of the church is doing an okay job on loving righteousness. Very small part of the church is doing good on this thing of hating wickedness. Amen? And they're equal there. Why did God raise you to this level? In part because you love righteousness and you hate wickedness. Amen? How about the Holy Spirit? How about the Holy Spirit? Well, what about Him? Well, not the Holy Spirit because He's this kind knight. No, no, no. All right. When Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, He tells us, remember that in John? He's beginning to tell them about, listen, I'm going to leave. Whoa, 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 you can't leave. No, 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 it's going to be good for you. You're actually going to, this is going to be beneficial because I'm going to send the comforter or depending on different translations, it may be helper. Now, a lot of us in the church today, when we think of the comforter, what we think of is an English nanny. Amen? Yeah, you know, you know, you're sitting there crying and whining. Oh, there, there, little one, here, blow your nose. You know, okay, you know, dry your eye, all right? But the word comforter, all right, that word comes from comfortus, means with courage. And, and if you ever have the ability, the, the opportunity to be in London, England, and you, and you go to some of the great cathedrals there, you know, uh, one, of the, one of the greatest ones there is a big, huge white one. And some of us saw the wedding ceremony, you know, some of the kings and queens get married there, right there by Parliament and Big Ben, right? And you go in there, and they have this huge tapestry on the walls. It's more museum than church nowadays, you know, so you pay to go in and see all these things. And they have this enormous tapestry, this old tapestry. I don't know how many hundreds of years old it is, but it's hanging there, and it recounts some historical event where there was a big battle there in England, and the church was rallying the people to stand and fight for their freedom. And in that picture, at the bottom of it, it says, Bishop so-and-so, I've forgotten what his name was, comforts the troops. He's comforting the troops. Do you know what he's doing 
in that tapestry? He's got a pitchfork, and he's sticking them in the behind with it. That's literally what. Bishop so-and-so comforts the truth. See? That's what the word comfort means. It means he's like, come on, get in there, get in there, get in the fight. Come on, go for it. Be filled with courage. Comfort us. Come on. That is the what? The comforter, the helper. The word parakletos uh, is the Greek word for comforter, helper. And a lot of us understand this, and this is commonly taught, that that word is a legal term. All right? And that's absolutely true. It was a legal term. It speaks of an attorney. All right? A defense attorney. When accusations are brought against you, that defense attorney stands up and argues your case. Amen? And so that's what the Holy Spirit does when the accuser of the brethren, Satan, right, comes, the, the Holy Spirit comes in, and a lot of us have gotten that teaching, all right? But there's another truth about this word parakletos. If you go further back in history, you find that in the Greek culture, prior to the Roman culture, the Greek culture, that word parakletos was a military term. It started as a military term and gradually evolved to be a courtroom term. The military term meant simply this, that when the Greek fighting machine, and that's what it was. It was an incredible fighting machine. I mean, they had this thing down to an art. Right? And when they put their troops together, they're, they're, they, they broke it down into different segments. Right? And so you have a large, you know, the army, and then it would break to this, you know, certain size, and then this smaller size, and then a smaller size. And the smallest segment of their army was two people. Two people, right? And so what happened was is they paired you with one other person. Bill, would you come here real quickly? See, Bill and I, we, we have this big army, and then it's broken down into maybe you know several hundred, and then about a hundred, and then our squad, maybe about 30. But then finally, we're paired with a person, one other person, all right? And when, and this makes sense, because you get into battles, and you've seen some of these things on TV, reenactments of battle. When the battle line first starts, it's all, everybody, the bad guys are over there, we're over here. But as the battle ensues and it goes on for a while, you got people all around you fighting, right? You could be the greatest warrior in the world, beating everybody in front of you, and some guy who can't even hardly hold his sword right sticks you in the back and kills you, right? So what they did is they paired you two to two, and when the ranks, when the lines broke down, you turned back to back, and you fought like this. Guess what this guy is called? Your paracletos. That's the beginning use of this word. The Holy Spirit... He's got your back. Amen? He fights at your back. And oh, I'm telling you, just take that and run with that this week. Look at some of the passages on the Holy Spirit. Some of them you're familiar with. Go back and read them with that understanding. And some of them will make so much more sense to you now. Amen? He stands at your back. He's a warrior. Amen? God wants you and I to be like Him. And He is a warrior. And he says this in Psalm 144, verse 1 to us, his people. Praise be to the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Why would he train my hands for war and my fingers for battle if I never engaged? If I never had to engage? Let me let me let me let me let me close today uh, with one passage of scripture. It's a little bit long, so I want you to stay with me. I want to read through this, and then we'll make uh, a full pull a few uh, pertinent points out of it, and we'll close this morning. Okay, Joshua chapter ten, a little further on in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter ten, verses sixteen through twenty-six. 
Now, that's, I'm going to read this, and I want you to stay with me. Many times when you read a long passage, I know what happens. People begin to check out. I want to encourage you, don't do that. You're going to miss something that God wants to say to you this morning if you do. Joshua chapter 10, 16 through 26. It says, Now the five kings had fled and hidden the cave at Makeda. These are five kings who have amassed a massive army. They are afraid of the people of God. They're fearful of them, so they amassed this huge, humongous army, all five of them, and we're going to wipe these guys out once and for all. But, of course, God gives them victory in the battle. His people get victory. And so here we are, the, the five kings, they're fleeing, and they're hiding in the cave at Makeda. When Joshua was told that the five kings had been found hiding in the cave at Makeda, he said, roll large rocks up to the mouth of the cave and post them in there to guard it. But don't stop. Pursue your enemies. Attack them from the rear and don't let them reach their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. So Joshua and the Israelites destroyed them completely, almost to a man. But the few who were left reached their fortified cities. The whole army then returned safely to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. And no one uttered a word against the Israelites. I bet they didn't. Verse 22, Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. When they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. Then Joshua struck and killed the kings and hung them on five trees. And they were left hanging on the trees until evening. Now, years ago, uh, I met a lady who was just this phenomenal, phenomenal woman of God. Touched my life just in a brief passing, but touched my life very powerfully. Since then, I've met a number of different people in ministry whose life were touched and changed by her in a dramatic way. So the biggest influence in their life in ministry is from this tiny little woman lady's name is Bertha Smith, and some of you may know about her if you don't know her or ever met her. Powerful woman of God. This gal, when she was this young woman, felt called by God to go to India with a word from God, a promise from God, that through her ministry there would be hundreds of churches planted in the nation of India. So she goes there with all these bright, happy thoughts and all these, uh, you know, excitement about, about you know, what's going to happen there, this great love for the Indian people. And after she's there only a short period of time, she has now given up hope completely and is ready to go home. She gets there. Shortly after she gets there, she contracts amoebic dysentery, chronic diarrhea. She finds out that she actually thought she loved the Indian people until she got there and started ministering to them. Amen. And then she figured out that she really hated them, didn't love them, and couldn't seem to regain a love for them. She'd been in language school since she'd gotten there, hadn't been able to learn the, the Indian language, just couldn't seem to grasp it. They had placed her in this home with two old maids in there that were driving her crazy. And then she also had this desire for a husband and family, which she had set aside years before, in order to serve God, but she couldn't seem to shake it. It kept coming back again and again and again. So she said, you know what? I just can't win. I'm totally ineffective. This whole thing was a mistake. And so she decides to return home in complete defeat. She sends all of her things to the ship the night before she sails. That morning she wakes up. She's got her clothes for the day and a Bible, and that's it. Everything else is at the ship. 
She gets up that morning to do her daily devotional reading as she's done ever since she was born again. She gets that morning, she opens a passage of reading that day, and she reads what you and I just read in Joshua chapter 10. She reads that, sets it down, and sits there and begins to contemplate what she read. And then the tears begin to flow and drip down her cheeks onto her brow. She said, God, what is wrong with this picture? He said, I've got amoebic dysentery. I've got no love for the Indian people. I can't learn the English language. These old maids are driving me crazy. I can't seem to shake this desire for a husband. I've got five kings who've got their foot on my neck. But your word says I'm to have my foot on those five kings' neck. She prays it through for a while. She writes out on a script of paper a short note, hands it to a runner to go down to the ship to get all of her things and bring them back. Get back to her house. And she told me that day when all of her things came back, she put them all up went in there in the living room and sat there and played hymns one after another and sang and worshiped. And she said, by the end of that day, I felt like, am I healed? I don't know, but I feel this resurgence of strength in my body. Turns out she was healed that very day. And then over the course of the weeks and months and years ahead, God turned every single one of those around. She just began to pick up the Indian language. She'd never been able to before. She developed a love, a deep love for the Indian people once again. The old maids that were driving her crazy and the husband and family that she wanted all got solved in one swoop. She met an American missionary on the scene and fell in love, and he with her and her with him, and they ended up getting married. And she planted hundreds of churches across the nation of India. Let me ask you something this morning, saints. Is there a foot on your neck? If there is, it doesn't belong there it doesn't belong there your foot belongs on his neck amen let's pray father we thank you for what you teach us from your word i thank you god that you make things very simple for us very clear for us because you don't want us to miss these things you want us to have life you want us to have abundant life, overflowing, superfluous life. You want us to possess the promises that you have for us. And you give us the strength and the wisdom how to possess them. God, I pray that you stir every heart in here this morning, every heart, every open heart in here this morning that's willing to hear your voice that you'd stir something in them today. Stir passion for things maybe that have been dropped years ago, things that have been set aside and just said, oh, well, I'll never get that. I'll never be able. Stir those back. Bring a fresh passion for those things back, God. And bring with it an awareness, an understanding that those things are for them. Father, fill us with fight this day. A godly, righteous, Holy Ghost-filled fight for those things that you promised us. Teach us. Train our hands for war and our fingers for battle. In Jesus' name, amen.